500 men-at-arms charged straight down the hill at the English entrenchments. Sir Geoffrey was striding along the line, shouting at the knights and men-at-arms to dismount. But they did so reluctantly. They believed that the essence of war was the cavalry charge. But Sir Geoffrey knew that horses were no use against a stone tower protected by entrenchments, and he had learned the hard way that they were pitiably vulnerable to English arrows. The oriflamme was unfurled, the sacred war pennant of France, a blood-red ripple of precious silk. The enemy knew that, unfurled, the oriflamme instructed the French to take no prisoners, to kill everyone, though, doubtless, wealthy English knights would still be captured, for a corpse yielded no ransom. Still, the long, triple-tongued flag should put terror into English hearts. A trumpet sounded, and the crossbowmen started down the hill, each accompanied by a foot-soldier holding up a vise, a huge shield that would protect the crossbowman while he reloaded his clumsy weapon. Montjoie Saint-Denis! the duke shouted France's war-cry. They thumped their big drums, and a dozen trumpeters blared their challenge at the sky. There were clicks as helmet-visors were lowered. The crossbowmen were already at the foot of the slope, spreading right to envelop the English flank. Then the first arrows flew, white-feathered English arrows, and the king saw that there were too few archers on the enemy side. Usually, whenever the damned English gave battle, their archers outnumbered their knights by at least three to one, but the outpost of Nurley seemed mostly to be garrisoned by men-at-arms. "'God speed you!' the king called to his soldiers. He was suddenly infused because he could scent victory. The trumpets sounded again, and now the grey metallic tide of men-at-arms swept down the slope. They roared their war cry, and it was rivalled by the drummers and trumpeters who were playing as if they could defeat the English with sound alone. "'God and Saint-Denis!' the king shouted. Hundreds of crossbow bolts hissed towards the earthworks. Then the Genoese bowmen stepped behind the huge shields to work the ratchets that bent back their steel-reinforced bows. The English archers turned towards Sir Geoffrey's attack. They put bodkin-headed arrows on their strings, arrows that were tipped with four inches of narrow-shafted steel that could pierce mail as if it were linen. They drew and shot, drew and shot, and the arrows thumped into shields, and the French closed ranks. Montjoie, Saint-Denis! The men-at-arms bellowed their challenge as the charge reached the flat ground at the foot of the slope. The arrows hammered into shields with sickening force, but the French held their tight formation, shields overlapping, and the crossbowmen edged closer to aim at the English, who were forced to stand high in their trenches to loose their weapons. Then the French were at the first entrenchment, and stabbing down at the English beneath them. Some Frenchmen found narrow causeways piercing the trench, and they streamed through to attack the defenders from the rear. Archers in the two rearmost trenches had easy targets, but so did the Genoese crossbowmen. Some of the English, sensing the slaughter to come, were running towards the ham. Edouard de Beaujeu saw the fugitives and shouted at the Genoese to drop their crossbows and join the attack. They drew swords or axes and swarmed at the enemy. Chill! the Beaujeu shouted. He spurred his big destria forward, his sword drawn. Chill! The Englishmen in the forward trench were doomed. 
they struggled to protect themselves from the mass of French men-at-arms. But the swords and axes slashed down, and the French swamped the slick mud at the trench's bottom with English blood. The defenders from the rearward trenches were all running now, but French horsemen, those too proud to fight on foot, spurred across the narrow causeways, shoved through their own men-at-arms, and screamed the war-cry as they drove their big horses into the fugitives beside the river. Stallions wheeled as swords chopped. An archer lost his head. A man-at-arms screamed as he was trampled by a destrier, then stabbed with a lance. An English knight held up a gauntlet as a token of surrender, and he was ridden down from behind, his spine pierced with a sword. "'Kill them!' the Duke of Bourbon shouted, his sword wet. "'Kill them all!' Around the base of Nierle's tower, survivors had formed a shield wall that was now surrounded by vengeful Frenchmen. No prisoners! a French knight shouted. No prisoners! The Duke saw a group of archers escaping towards the bridge and shouted at his followers, With me! With me! Montjoie! Saint Denis! The archers, nearly thirty of them, had fled towards the bridge. But when they reached the reed-thatched houses beside the river, they heard the thunder of French hooves and turned in alarm. Then a group of English knights charged from the village. The English were the men the French king had seen. They had been about to ride back across the bridge when the Duke of Bourbon's men had come close, a challenge that could not be ignored. So the English lord led his household knights in a charge that tore into the Duke of Bourbon's men. The Frenchmen had not been ready for the attack, and the English came in proper array, knee to knee, and the long ash lances tore through mail and leather. The English leader's surcoat turned black with enemy blood as he rammed his sword up into the unprotected armpit of a French man-at-arms. Then another Englishman hammered a mace into his visor that crumpled under the blow and sprang blood from a dozen rents. A hamstrung horse screamed and toppled. Stay close, the Englishman was shouting at his men. Stay close! But a mass of French horsemen was coming down the hill, and still more Frenchmen, unable to join the attack on the tower because too many of their fellows were assembling to help kill the garrison's remnant, were now charging the bridge. Back! the English leader called. But the village street and the narrow bridge were blocked by fugitives and threatened by Frenchmen. Instead, he looked across the road, and saw a path running beside the river. It might lead to the beach, he thought, and there he could ride east to rejoin the English lines. The English knights slashed their spurs back. The path was narrow, only two horsemen could ride abreast. On one side was the river Ham, and on the other, swamp. But the path itself was firm, and the English rode it until they reached a stretch of higher ground where they could assemble but they could not escape. The ground was almost an island, reachable only by the path, and surrounded by a morass of reeds and mud. They were trapped. The St. James anchored off the beach south of Calais and ferried its passengers ashore in rowboats. Three of the passengers, all in mail, had so much baggage that they paid two of the St. James's crew to carry it into the streets of the English encampment where they sought the Earl of Northampton. The nobles' quarters had their banners displayed outside, 
and mail-clad guards standing at their doors. Some of the houses had two stories, and cobblers, armourers, smiths, fruiterers, bakers and butchers had hung signs from their upper floors. There were whorehouses and churches, fortune-tellers' booths and taverns built between the tents and houses. Children played in the streets, and a cemetery spread into the marshes. The three men found the Earl's quarters, which was a large wooden dwelling close to the pavilion that flew the royal flag, and there two of them, the youngest and the oldest, stayed with the baggage, while the third man, the tallest, walked towards Nyerle. He had been told the Earl had led some horsemen on a foray towards the French army. The tall man had shouldered a long black bow-stave, picked up an arrow-bag, and left. His name was Thomas, sometimes Thomas of Hopeton. Other times he was Thomas the Bastard, and he could call himself Thomas Vexile, though he rarely did. The Vexiles were a noble Gascon family, and Thomas of Hopeton was an illegitimate son of a fugitive Vexile, which had left him neither noble nor Vexile, and certainly not Gascon. He was an English archer. Thomas attracted glances as he walked through the camp. He was tall, black hair showed beneath the edge of his iron helmet. He was young, but his face had been hardened by war. He had dark, watchful eyes and a long nose that had been broken in a fight and set crooked. His mail was dulled by travel, and beneath it he wore a leather jerkin, black breeches, and long black riding boots. A sword, scabbarded in black leather, hung at his left side, a haversack at his back, and a white arrow bag at his right hip.